prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that we will truly understand your words to us today. They will impact us. They will change our hearts and our minds so that our whole lives will be placed in the trust of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray all these things. Amen. Now, I wonder if uh, last week you managed to uh, have in your straight times uh, the uh, a quick look at uh, this mind, your body. You know, it comes every week in the Straits Times, and it's a whole section about health and about uh, being healthy. And I couldn't help but noticing that on the uh, edition of this week's Mind Your Body, the topic was all about friendship. Right? It says, here's to friendship. And actually says that uh, when you have friends, right, it's very important for your health. And no matter how rich you are, how independent you are, no matter who you are, it's always good to have friends. And why is that? Well, according to this article, it says that having friends is really important because it's important to know that someone cares for you. Now, I think that we will all agree that we will all like someone to care for us. Isn't that right? I mean, anybody here would like to know that nobody cares for you? No, isn't it? We will all like to feel that someone cares for us, you know, right now. A friend who cares for us. And I think it's very true even from my own, own experience. As you know, when my mom was suffering from cancer, in the last days of her life, every week, she had a friend, a childhood friend who went through secondary school with her, come and visit her every week. And she would come, she would sit down in her room in the dark, and they would talk about all sorts of things. She would pray with her, read the Bible with her, and they would talk about things that uh, she didn't even talk to us as children about. So that friends are really important, isn't it? Friends who care for you. And I think that that's why today's passage is so important. Because as we've looked at the book of Mark from chapter 1 to chapter 5 so far, we've seen the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. We've seen Jesus have authority over the natural world, over the storms. Jesus has authority over the supernatural world, even over that great uh, spirit-possessed man who is possessed by a legion of demons. But here, we see the question is being asked, what is the character of Jesus? What is his relationship Towards you, what is his relationship towards me? Yes, he's powerful, he's God, he's, you know, he has power of everything, even the power to raise the dead. But what is his relationship to us? How does he feel towards us as his people? Well, it begins today on verse 30, and if you open your Bibles to me, with me, it begins, as it was read for us um, by Ernest, in verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now, obviously, this links back with chapter 6, verse 7 onwards. Because in chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples to do a short-term mission, right? So if you look up here on the slide, here, up here, you remember last week, Jesus had been teaching in Nazareth, which was there. Wait, how come it's so dark now? Can you see that little red dot? Okay, but he had sent out his disciples on a short-term mission around the region of Nazareth. And today, in verse 30, they had all come back for a time of report. A time of a status report to tell Jesus how their preaching and their teaching, as well as their healing, had been going. And obviously, it had been going very well. Because if you look there in verse 31, many people had come, it says there in verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. So what was happening here 
was that the disciples had had an intensive time of short-term mission, and they had a time of report to Jesus, but now they were looking forward to a time of rest, a time of relaxation, a time of reflection. And I think that we all deserve that, isn't it? Uh, everyone needs a time of rest. Everyone needs a time of, of uh, a time out, a day off. And here, Jesus, seeing how tired the disciples were, said, well, you know, you guys need to get away with me. Let's have a bit of R&R. But what happens? Well, in verse 32, when they came to this solitary place, what had happened? Many people who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, I wonder how you would have felt if you were one of the disciples. Can you imagine you had just been slogging away at this short-term mission? And then you go to Jesus and you're really tired. You know, it's been a really hectic time. Yes, many people have come to know about Jesus. But it's so busy, you don't even have time to eat. So you go to this place, you know, and you want to have a time of relaxation. And when you get there, what happens? Everybody is there waiting for you. I don't know about you, but maybe you would feel a bit disappointed. that You're not going to get your rest. A bit irritated. Maybe a bit resentful, right? It's like you've been working really hard at work and you plan for this long-needed, long-deserved holiday and you get there to your beautiful beach resort and what happens? All your clients and customers are there waiting for you, right? And that's exactly what's happening here, isn't it? But how does Jesus react? How does Jesus react to the crowd being there? Well, look at what it says there in verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had irritation for them. No, he didn't, right? He had compassion on them, it says there. He had compassion in them. The word compassion here is literally the word, uh, it's an ancient Greek word which, which refers to the stomach. And he says, he felt deep sympathy for them, great tenderness and mercy towards them from the gut, from the heart. He had great compassion and tenderness to them. And why did he have this great sympathy from the stomach for them? Is it because he saw that they were very hungry? Or they were very poor? Or that they were very, very tired from all the running after them? That they run a marathon or something? No, isn't it? Look at what it says there, the surprising thing it says there in verse 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. What an interesting thing to say. He had compassion on them. He had great sympathy on them, not because they were tired or hungry or poor, but because they were sheep without a shepherd. Now, what does Jesus mean here? Obviously, they're people, right? They're not sheep. What does it mean that they were sheep without a shepherd? Well, the phrase here was not something which the Jews were unfamiliar with. See, in Israel's history, in the history of God's people, the leaders of Israel were always meant to be the shepherd of God's people, the shepherd over the sheep. But what had happened was, uh, the, the leadership, the leaders, these shepherds which, which were over God's people, had become wicked, had become selfish and corrupted. These leaders were to keep uh, the people following the path of God and following the statutes of the law. But instead, they themselves have become sinful and wicked and evil. And we see that in Jesus' day, isn't it? Remember the last few weeks we've been studying? Who were the shepherds over the sheep of Israel? King Herod. Remember King Herod? He was the king officially over Israel. 
But he was an evil man. He was a man totally lacking in morals or even basic righteousness. He married his brother's wife. Remember we learned that last week. He murdered John the Baptist, a prophet. Well, this man was not a good shepherd. What about the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, we saw that they were following their own traditions. They weren't following the way of God. And on top of that, on the Sabbath day, they met to plan to murder Jesus. What a thing to do on the Sabbath, right? Sabbath day is a day for rest. And here they are coming together to plan for murder. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel chapter 34, next slide, right? God had prophesied that He would place over them, over God's people, one shepherd, my servant David. And He will tend to them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So what Jesus is saying when he says that he has compassion on the crowd, they were like sheep without a shepherd. He's saying to those who have ears who will hear and hearts that are open, that he is the shepherd. He is the shepherd that God has sent. He is the shepherd that God has sent to shepherd his sheep. What is the identity of Jesus? Who am I? Or is he saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd, the true shepherd that has come to tend the sheep of God. Now, if you notice, the very next verse, uh, sorry, the next part of the verse in, in the verse 34b, he says, so he began teaching them many things. Now, that's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because you sort of think that as a shepherd, you'd feed the flock. So maybe Jesus would do this fantastic miracle and then you know he would, he would produce a lot of food or he would you know, heal them or cast out all the demons. But what does Jesus do as a response to this great outpouring of sympathy and tenderness in his stomach, in his heart, in his very being? Out of compassion, what does he do for the people? He teaches them. He teaches them, right? He teaches them God's word. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. Now what a mind-blowing thing it is. What do we feel? When do we feel compassion for God's people? When do we feel compassion for anybody? Now if you look here on the next slide, right? The next slide, oh. Uh, the next one, next one. See, we, we might feel sympathy when we see people suffering from an earthquake in Haiti, isn't it? Or isn't it when you look at the newspaper, you, you, know, you look at the newspaper and you think, oh, it's so sad. These people have all lost their homes and their houses and you feel compassion. Or the next slide. Or you might feel great compassion when you see people in poverty. But I want you to notice what Jesus feels compassion for. He feels compassion because they have no shepherd over them. There's no one to teach them about the Word of God. There is no one to guide them, to feed them about the knowledge, about the kingdom of God, about the way of God's righteousness. Now I think that that's a really sad thing, isn't it? And it's something which it should be a lesson for us. Because what is the greatest need of man? What is the greatest need for you and for me and our friends and our, our family and our classmates and our colleagues? It is to be fed, to be taught, the Word of God. Isn't it sad that we feel compassion over the material or the physical 
plight of people, but we do not see their spiritual plight. Jesus looks at the crowd and he feels compassion on them because they are sheep without a shepherd. Now, I remember for myself, one of the reasons why I decided to become a pastor was because when I was working as an accountant, my wife was working in Scripture Union, and we used to visit a lot of churches uh, to sell Scripture Union material. It's a bit like daily bread, you know. So, you know, it's a similar sort of material. So, we go to visit a lot of churches. And I remember going to many churches. And when I went to the church and I sat in the service that you, you are sitting here today, Many times I would hear from the pulpit. And the pulpit ministry was not about shepherding God's sheep by teaching them the word of God. Many times I'll be listening to the service and people will be just telling their life stories. One life story after another, one life story after another. They never opened the Bible. They'll be giving motivational and self-help talks with just a few sprinkling of Bible passages here and there or moralistic a sermon about just how you've got to be a good person. But at the end of the day, Jesus, the true shepherd, says that our priorities are that we need to be fed a consistent and constant diet of God's Word. Teaching about the Kingdom of God. That is what we as His sheep need. We need to be fed with God's Word. So as we look at this passage, I think the challenge for us is, yes, Jesus is the good shepherd. He cares and loves for us. But as he cares and loves his people, what is the great need of his people? They need to be fed with the word of God. They need to be taught his word. Now we then move on uh, to the next section. Actually, I'm going to cover the next two together because I think they belong together. But here we have two of the greatest miracles, I think, uh, that Jesus does. In, in, the, in the Old Testament, apart from being raised from the dead. But, but here, in terms of the visible and the size and the magnitude of the miracles, this is really outstanding, isn't it? Because in the first miracle that he does, Jesus feeds 5,000 men. Okay, now I want you to turn to verse 44, isn't it? The number of men who had eaten were 5,000. So Jesus doesn't just feed 5,000 people, he feeds only 5,000 men. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that the women and children ate nothing, right? But all the men stuffed themselves full, okay? But what it means is that Jesus fed a great multitude. I mean, there were 5,000 men, maybe there were 8,000, 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people there. Jesus fed this great multitude in the desert. Now, in verse 35 and verse 36, we see that it was a late time in the day. It says in verse 35, by this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away, he said, so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, late in the day, probably was about, I don't know, uh, most scholars think that this happened around mid-April. So the sun set about 6 p.m., so late in the day, maybe about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, the disciples come to Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, we're really hungry too, you know. And we didn't get to eat as well, right? And now we came here and, and, and we're still hungry. And these people are hungry and I'm sure you are hungry too. And look at how many people there are. Send them home or send them back to go and buy food. Now, to give you an idea of how big this crowd is, uh, if you look at this LCD, next slide, is it there? Uh, the town of Capernaum, which is where most of the action has been centered over the last few weeks, 
it will only contain about 3,000 people. Okay, so most, maximum 3,000 people. So the number of people that Jesus had there was greater than the, than the surrounding townships. Shows you just how popular Jesus was. Okay, so you think about it, there's no shops nearby, this deserted place. Uh, there is no kafu, no giant superstore, right? I don't know what else they have in, in Malaysia. What, is it? what do they have in Malaysia? I can't remember. But, but some big mega store, there is no place like that, isn't it? They are in this deserted place and there's no food. So the disciples, I'm sure you would say the same thing. Jesus, I think these people need to go home, right? Because if they don't go home and it starts getting dark, how are we going to feed them? Now, look at what Jesus says in verse 37, because it's a shocking thing he says, a shocking thing. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Now, when we, when we read it in the, right, written for us, that we don't get the tone of what Jesus says, okay? Because when you speak, you can hear the nuances, right? So, you know, if you ever watch uh, Al Pacino, there's this movie called The Taxi Driver. It's a very famous movie. There's, there's this phrase that's always used, right? You talking to me? Have you heard that phrase before? So you can say, you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Right? Okay? Now, here, Jesus, uh, the emphasis is on you. You give them something to eat. You, the disciples, give them something to eat. But the disciples are obviously unprepared to give them something to eat. Because he says, look, eight months' wages, eight months' wages would not be enough to feed these people. In fact, in the book of John, Next slide. In the book of John, we say, uh, Philip answers him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one just to have a bite. That's how big this crowd is. Right? That even eight months' wages, each person couldn't just have one bite. Not eat to be full, uh, but just participate in the meal. So, there's this sense of astonishment right, by the disciples. They're like, Jesus, are you serious, right? I mean, can you be really serious? There's no Pizza Hut delivery here, okay? No McDonald's uh, delivery, okay? We don't even have money. How are, these, how are we going to feed these people? And then the next question that Jesus says uh, also emphasizes just how amazing this is. Verse 38. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten were five thousand. Right? Verse 38 to verse 44. Now, if you look here, how much provision does Jesus have? Five loaves and two fish. Now, we're not talking Delifrance, big French baguette, okay? Now, the loaf that they're talking about is a small small bread that the, the Jewish people used to eat. Okay, it's like the Lebanese Lebanese sort of bread. 
Okay? And uh, some fish, some small fish. I mean, we read in another part that it's just a small boy's lunch. Okay, small boy's lunch. Now, for many of you, you know that uh, this Saturday, there's open house in my, 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 my dad's house, and we're inviting you to come to dinner, right? So please go and tell my wife you're coming. Because she's very stressed, see? Because the worst thing for my wife is to under, under cater. Okay? Uh, if you ever go out with my parents, we never under cater. We will always order too much food. Because, you know, it's very embarrassing when you under cater, right? You know, you invite people and they're not full. Now, when you look at this, this, uh, banquet of Jesus, he's under catered, isn't it? He's severely, hugely under catered. He has more than 10,000 people or 5,000 men. And how much food does he get? To, how much food did he cater? Five loaves and two fish. He's undercated. But then, when Jesus feeds the people, what happens in verse 42? All of them ate, it says there. They were all ate and were satisfied. And they had leftovers at 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. When Jesus begins, he undercaters. But when Jesus ends, he overcated by 12 basketfuls. Now what is happening here is that Jesus did a fantastic miracle. An astounding miracle of the highest degree. You cannot explain the miracle away. You either believe that it happened or you believe that the disciples made it up. There's no two ways about it. I've read some people say, oh you know, maybe the disciples got the numbers mixed up. Maybe it wasn't 5,000 men, maybe it was just a small group of people, you know, maybe 50 to 100 people. I don't think the disciples could uh, mistake a crowd bigger than the nearest town and a small crowd of 50 to 100 people. And they wouldn't mistake eight months' wages just to feed 50 to 100 people. Some other people say, oh, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, uh, this is a very popular one, right? Maybe the crowd, they were so encouraged by the generosity of the disciples and selling, sharing their five loaves and two fish that they started sharing their own food as well. But that doesn't explain how the food keeps growing and growing as Jesus distributes it, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is the one distributing the food. The food doesn't come from the crowd back to Jesus. Some other people say that it's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's like a miniature Lord's Supper. Everybody just has a tiny, tiny piece of that little bread and fish. But then it doesn't explain verse 42. How can everybody eat and be satisfied and be left with 12 basketfuls? You see, the only explanation is this is a miracle. A very public miracle. But why does Jesus do it? Why does he do this miracle? Is he like a magician, like you know David Blaine or David Copperfield? Why does he do this? Well, I think that it's more than just showing that Jesus is a powerful miracle maker. I was reading this uh, very good um, commentary. It's called Mark, Jesus' Servant and Savior, by this guy called Ken Hughes. And he writes this very good point. He says, Having preached now on many of Jesus' miracles and for many years, I've come to see that the miracles themselves are not just divinely ordered by God, but also the setting and the surrounding details are ordered by God. So what he's saying here is that not only is the miracle divinely controlled by God, but also where it happens and how it happens is controlled by Jesus and God. And I think that where this happens is very important. You can't ignore it. You see, it happens in a deserted place. In a deserted place. And I think that it's meant for the disciples and also for us to remember 
that another miracle happened in a very deserted place. You see, the great act of God in revealing Himself to Israel happened when? When He fed the Israelites in the desert with bread from heaven. Remember in Exodus chapter 16 up here, right? In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. And there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that bread. And where did this place take place? In the desert, isn't it? Right? In the desert. And where does Jesus feed this crowd? It's also in the desert. You see, look at verse 31 and verse 32 again. Turn back to me in the Bibles. Verse 31 to 32. Look what it says. Right? He says, Come with me to a quiet place to get some rest. But the word there is actually a deserted place. Verse 32. So they went away by themselves and go to a solitary place. Again, the word there is a deserted place. Right? So if you look here, in the King James Version, it's the same, next slide, yep, also the same uh, uh, translation, a new Revised Standard. Come to a desert place, it says there. In verse 32, and they departed into a desert place by ship privately. See, what happens here is not an accident. Jesus is replicating the feeding of Israel from heaven by feeding the people by his own hands in the desert place. And what he's trying to show them, this is an educational miracle, not like teaching or instructional miracle. He's trying to show them that he is a provider just as God is a provider. He is God the provider who loves and cares for his people by feeding his people. See, and that's why I think this thing, this incident doesn't just show the power of Jesus. It shows the love and care of Jesus. And it's linked to the very next miracle. That's why, you know, some people split the two miracles, right? Feeding of 5,000, walking water. But actually, they belong together. See, when you think back, what are the most powerful miracles that God did for Israel in the Old Testament? Bread from heaven? Walking through the Red Sea, isn't it? Prince of Egypt. Right? Okay? Those are the two powerful miracles that God revealed His love and care for His people. Bread from heaven, walking through the Red Sea. So Jesus, what has He done? He's shown that he, he's, he's God. He feeds His people the bread in the desert place. But the next one, He almost replicates the other and He helps His people on the sea. So what happens here? And the next miracle, when Jesus walks on water. Well, uh, if you look up here in the LCD, Jesus, uh, we're not sure exactly, we think that Jesus went from here to here or around this area. right? And here he tells his disciples to, to go from one side of the lake to the other. And obviously, they are meant to sail across this lake, right? That's the fastest way of doing it. Like. We don't have engines then, okay? But, Obviously, the wind was so powerful that it pushed them into the middle of the lake. <clears throat> Instead of staying close to the shore, cutting across, the wind came from the north and pushed them further and further and further into the middle of the lake. And so, they were forced to take the sail down and use the oars to row. Okay, because obviously, if the wind is blowing against you, 
What's the point of having the sail up, right? Okay? See, you learn so many things from the Bible. Not just about the Bible, but how to sail, right? Okay, so if the wind is blowing against you, take the sail down, start getting your pedals and, and your oars and start rowing. And here they are, they're rowing and the wind is against them. Now, I don't know about you, but I wonder if you've ever been stuck in the middle of a lake. I think it must be pretty tiring. We don't really capture the details because we sort of read through it so quickly, but Jesus sees them in the middle of the lake at the fourth watch. That means they're stuck in the middle of the lake between 3 to 6 o'clock in the morning. And they're not getting anywhere. All right. Now, I don't know how you would feel. I would hate to be stuck in the middle of the lake in the middle of the day, rowing and not getting anywhere. But imagine being stuck in the middle of the lake between 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the morning. You should be sleeping then, right? Okay. So they've had a long day. They've been doing mission work. They come back, they want to rest. They didn't even get a chance to eat. They eat, right? And here they are, they think, okay, we're going to have a really good night's rest. But what they're doing, they're still rowing in the middle of this silly lake, right? I don't know how many hours have passed. Seven, six hours of rowing. And here they are, still stuck on the lake. So Jesus sees them. What does Jesus do? Well, verse 48, let's look at verse 48 onwards. Verse 48. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch, okay, this is 3 to 6 a.m. of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. Okay, remember that walking on the lake, right? He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they, were, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he walk out to them in the lake? Why does he, as it says there, try to pass them by? You see, like, you know, when I'm driving down the ECP or PIE, and then this guy in a very fast car tries to pass me by to show off, hey, you know, my car is faster than yours. Right? It's Jesus saying, look, I can walk faster than you can roll, you know? Right? Is he trying to say that? No, he's not, isn't it? He's not trying to do a party trick for them. Okay? But what he's trying to do is, he's trying to show them what he's going to do for them, which is to calm the storm so that they can get to where they're supposed to get to. Now, I don't know about you, but walking on water is a pretty tremendous miracle. Now again, some people try to explain away this miracle. They say, you know, maybe Jesus was walking on this reef hidden under the water. Or maybe Jesus was wading on the surf close to the shore, but you know, the the disciples, were dark, they were tired. He just couldn't see. You know, he was walking on the, the surf, but he wasn't really walking on the water. And some people, you know, maybe look, even the magicians can walk water, right? You know, you, you put them in the, in the swimming pool, it's all calm with magic and mirrors and everything. You know, people walk on water. But I think that it's not anything like that at all, isn't it? Someone once said, if you wanted to replicate what Jesus did, don't go to the swimming pool, indoor swimming pool with everything nice and calm. Go to the Straits of Malacca when it's a big storm, try walking on water then. Right? Like one commentator said, the wind was howling, the, the waves were going up and down, but it didn't affect Jesus. He wasn't thrown back and forth on a, like a roller coaster ride. He didn't get wet, he didn't get soaked with water, splash everywhere, no. He just walked on this path which appeared before him. He didn't float in the air like a helicopter, he walked on the water to the boat. And it's a picture of God, isn't it? Only God can do that 
only the mastery of the, the, the natural elements will allow Jesus to do that. It is a visual instructional miracle to show the disciples that He is God. He is no different from the Yahweh who brought the Israelites through the Red Sea. In case the, Israel, the, 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 uh, the disciples don't get it, the works of God, of Jesus here, are attached with the words of God, isn't it? of Jesus. So look at what it says there in the second half of verse 50. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, it's a strange thing to say, okay? You would say, Take courage. Don't be afraid. What would you say? It is me. It is me, isn't it? No one ever says, uh, Who's that on the phone? It is I. Right? It is me. Me is me, right? Not I. So why does Jesus, you know, maybe he's his uh, vocabulary not so good or something. Why does he say it is I? Because it is the name of God. The original Greek is ego ami. I am. It is I am. And that is the name of God. That is the name that God gives Moses when he saves his people. See, look what it says here up here on the slide. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They asked me, what is his name? And what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you have to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Same thing that Jesus says, it is I am. If you don't understand me walking in water, it is I am. That's who I am. That's why I can walk on the water. John chapter 8. The Pharisees recognize what Jesus is saying when he says I am. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Actually, it should be I was, right? But it's I am, right? Okay? Because I am. He is God. He is before, present, and future. He is always here. I am. At this, they picked up the stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. See, Jesus is God. Jesus feeds in the desert, just as God had done with the Israelites. Jesus walks on water and controls nature just as God brought His people through the Red Sea. But more than that, it shows that Jesus really cares for His people. He is a loving God. He is the Good Shepherd who cares for His disciples. Now theoretically, having seen all these things, the disciples should have worshipped God. They should have bowed down and had faith in Him and trusted Him but instead they were terrified of him, isn't it? They were amazed, but it didn't say they had faith in him. It says there in verse 51, a very sad thing in a way, isn't it? It says, Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They had not really taken to heart that Jesus is God who cares for them. That Jesus is the good shepherd who loves them. And the dangerous thing is, Jesus uses a phrase, or Mark uses a phrase, to describe the disciples that is only used for the enemies of Jesus. Their hearts are hardened. 
See, look at remember chapter three, verse five. Chapter three, verse five, up here on the slide. Uh, the Pharisees had seen the great miracles of Jesus, but they refused to acknowledge Jesus. And remember how Jesus had described them. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And here the disciples have stubborn hearts. They are hardened in their heart. They have the information, but they don't have the heart. Their hearts are not softened to the identity of Jesus. Now I think that this is a very powerful passage for us. Now when I ask you this question, I, I hope you sincerely think of it. Do you believe that Jesus fed the 5,000 men? Do you believe that he really fed all those people from two fish and five loaves? Do you? Do you really believe that Jesus walked on water that day in the stormy sea? Do you really believe that? If you do believe that, then as you look at this passage, it should give you security and safety, isn't it? We should not be filled with worries and cares and concerns because we worship a God who cares for us, who has power over everything. Over the course of uh, this week, I've been talking to some people and many people I talk to, their lives are full of worry. Their lives are full of troubles. Now, I don't know what troubles you're facing. I don't know what problems you have. I don't know what concerns and you know how hard life is. But if we believe in Jesus and know who He really is, that He is our Good Shepherd, that He is a God who cares and loves for us, that He is a God who is so powerful that He can do anything in, in, in this world, then we can put our trust in Jesus. Because to not do that actually is to show our hard-heartedness. We must soften our heart and look to Jesus and see who He really is and recognize that He will bring us through, isn't it? It's a bit like that song that we sang. I thought a very good song actually in the end. Uh, the song that uh, Andrew led us through about the Lord is my shepherd and it keeps ending, Your goodness will see me home. You remember the last uh, stanza? It says, Your goodness will see me home. I wonder when we sing it whether we really believe it. Your goodness will see me home. I was reading this book by Oswald Sanders, uh, Sanders and he says, The trouble is that our conception of God is too small. We consider him inadequate to cope with the complexities and weaknesses of our nature. So we will only have peace when we discover a greater God through meditation on His Word and who He really is. And I think that's true, isn't it? So many times we have problems in life and we worry and stress out. Is that not because we do not trust and know Jesus and His power and His love for us? Is that you? Do you stress and worry and fret and be anxious because you do not know the power and the love of Jesus for you? In conclusion, uh, I remember this very popular song. I'm sure many of you have heard it. Actually, only if you listen to Go Night FM, I suppose. Right, but it's a song by Bette Midler, right? And the song is, uh, you know, from a distance, okay? 
I'm sure you all listen, right? It's about, you know, I won't sing it for you, right? It's from a distance, right? God is watching us from a distance. God is watching us. But you know, the picture of God, and this is a very popular picture of God, that God watches us from a distance. He is a distant God, a remote God. He is a disinterested God in us. But is that the picture of Jesus? Is that the picture of our God? No, that's not the picture of our God. The picture of our God is a God who is the Good Shepherd, who cares for us and loves us, who provides for us, who in the end, His goodness will truly see us home. Well, let's know God for who He really is. Let's soften our hearts and put our trust in this Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that Jesus, your Son, has, is truly God in every way, that He did what you did for the Israelites. That He fed the 5,000 men and numerous and countless other women and children. That He walked on water. But beyond that, that this was to show us that He truly cares for us. That He is the Good Shepherd. The shepherd who gives up his very life for his sheep. Therefore, Father, let us have soft hearts, dear Father. Through your Holy Spirit, soften our hearts so that we may know Jesus afresh, anew, and the power and the love that he has for us. That we will not fret and see him as too small or too weak to deal with the problems of our life or too disinterested to deal with the problems of our life. But to always trust in Jesus and to rely on Him and to worship Him and have faith in Him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.